We have been looking at the Gospel of John here. This is our fourth message. And we are in verse 6 as we come to the text again this time. We've talked about so far the overall thrust of the book and why John wrote it. We've talked about in detail things about John himself, his vocabulary, his Greek, his simple language, and yet the profound things that he teaches in this gospel. We've talked about here in the beginning in John's introduction the deity of Jesus Christ. I was personally very intrigued in our last study together when we talked about the incarnation of Christ and how He has revealed God to us, how He has come near to us and shown us how near God wants to be to us in our relationship with Him. We've seen Jesus here as the creator of the heavens and the universe. Talked about many good things. Looked at Christ as God long before the beginning when He created the heavens and the earth. And now we come to suddenly switch tracks as John here suddenly introduces John the Baptist into this section where he is himself just giving us introductory thoughts as we get into his gospel. So we come to verse 6. Let's read from verse 6, shall we, down to verse 13. He says, There was a man that was sent from God whose name was John. This man came for a witness to bear witness of the light that all through him might believe. He was not that light, but was sent to bear witness of that light. That was the true light which gives light to every man that comes into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. That last statement there is just loaded with profound theology. Now, in looking at this section, I want to divide it up in just basically a twofold way. First of all, we have John as the witness of the light. And then we have the whole idea of the world and the light, the light coming to the world and how the world responds to that light, the light of God in Jesus Christ. Let's begin by talking about the witness of the light that we have in John. In verse 6 it says, There was a man sent from God. So the first thing we encounter here is a man who is actually sent from God himself. John was a unique prophet. He occupies a very unique place in Scripture, and we're going to see more of him as we move through the book, so I don't want to exhaust the whole idea and issue and subject of John the Baptist right here. We will see more of him. But he was very unique as a prophet. He is unique in Scripture because he stands between the Old and the New Testament. In Luke 16, 16, it says, The law and the prophets were until John, and since that time the kingdom of God has been preached. So the uniqueness about John is that he was the last of the Old Testament prophets and really one of the first New Testament Christians. He had the unique privilege of being the personal herald of Jesus Christ. If you can imagine that, what a wonderful ministry that would be. In Matthew 11, 11, Jesus said, I, Assuredly, I say to you, among those born of women, there has not risen one greater than John the Baptist. And the great thing about John the Baptist is his character and his calling, of course. I mean, one of the greatest things about him that would cause Jesus to give this statement is who he was as the herald of God coming to planet Earth. And so in that sense, of course, there was never a greater man who ever lived than the one who would stand and point to the Lamb of God who had come to take away the sin of the world. 
but also there was John's character. If you think of John out there in the wilderness and the way that he dressed, the way that he lived, such a simple life, clothed in camel's hair, eating locusts and wild honey, the guy lived a very, very simple life, but all of that was part of the fact that he was a Nazarite. John is one of the three men in all of Scripture who lived a Nazarite vow for their entire life. We know that John lived that way, Samuel lived that way, Samson lived that way and failed miserably on the Nazarite end of things, which caused him all the trouble when he had his hair cut and lost his power and the Spirit of the Lord departed from him. But these are the three men who lived a Nazarite vow in Scripture and basically lived it for life. Others took it temporarily, but they took it for life. And it was the idea that you separated yourself unto God to live on a higher level of commitment than the average person. Well, John that lived that way for his whole life. And so living out in the wilderness the way he did was part of fulfilling that Nazarite vow lifestyle to God. But he was, as Jesus said, the greatest man who had ever lived up until that time. There was a man, we read in verse 6, sent from God whose name was John. It's interesting, just as a side thought, to realize how many men throughout history, church history, have been named John and been used by God. Have you ever thought about that? Well, we are reading the Gospel of John right here. Last time we talked about a man by the name of John Mark, who you know wrote the Gospel of Mark. You look through history and you see a man by the name of John Knox, who was a great reformer in Scotland. You see John Calvin. You see John Wesley. I mean, the list goes on and on of all these Johns. And I think that one of the reasons we have so many good men named John is because their godly parents looked into the Bible and saw John the Baptist as such a great example for ministry, gave their son that name and prayed over him and asked God to make him like him. My middle name is John. Not really. It's amazing to see how many Johns have been sent by God and have had such a wonderful impact of turning people to Jesus Christ. He was a man sent from God. Verses 7 and 8 tell us he was a witness of the light. In other words, his ministry was that of testifying. He was called to testify with his mouth. He was called by God to open his mouth and speak of Jesus, lead people to Jesus through the words that he shared. In verse 7, says, this man came for a witness to bear witness of the light that all through him might believe. The NIV renders it this way. It says, he came as a witness to testify, to testify concerning that light so that through him all men might believe. Now, the difference between an attorney and a witness is that an attorney tries to prove the case with the facts. A witness just tells what he knows to be true. And that's what John was. He was a witness. He simply stood and told what he knew to be true about Jesus Christ and in the process turned men toward him. Also in the process, it's interesting to note that he broke the silence of 400 years. Between the Old Testament and the New Testament, you have the, what they call the 400 silent years, where there were no prophets being sent by God. It was basically a time of silence and, in some sense, darkness. And suddenly, in the middle of that dark silence, this floodlight is turned on, and John the Baptist appears on the scene, filled with the Holy Spirit from birth, going out to preach to the people and basically giving them a bold and powerful testimony 
that their Messiah is coming and the time is now. They need to open their eyes, get repentant toward God and look for Him because He's coming and then He has the pleasure of that one day actually pointing Him out to the people. So John burst on the scene breaking the silence of 400 years with a thunderous ministry testifying of Jesus Christ. But as you look at John and you look at his ministry, you see that he was a model of all true Christian witness. I don't know how it strikes you when you read the Bible and see John as you see him here and we'll see him later. But what I see is the model of all true Christian witness because he was called to testify as a witness and he did it so well. He did it just exactly the way God wanted him to. Verse 7, this man came for a witness to bear witness of the light that all through him might believe and he was not that light but he was sent to bear witness of the light. What you have then with John the Baptist is this. You have one man, one man, called of God, yes, but deep within his heart he made the decision that he would live out that lifestyle God called him to. He made the decision that he would separate himself out from among the common crowd, out from among even the common true believers of that day, and rise to a level above and call people to Christ. He made the commitment to stand alone, as it were, against all of the mockers that came out to him and tried to exterminate his witness those that came out to him from Jerusalem and the whole area around about of religious leaders. But he was a witness for God. He stood alone. And in that sense, he is an example to all of us. Because in the end, we must all stand alone. In the end, we must all make the decision inside that we will stand for Christ, whether our friends will do it or not. And the great thing is that Jesus has given us the power to do it. You see, we're all called to be witnesses. In Acts 1.8, it says, But you shall receive power, Jesus said, when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be witnesses to me in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and all the way out to the end of the earth. So all of us are called to be witnesses. The question is, where does God call you to shine? That's the question. Has God called you to shine locally in your own area of Jerusalem, you might say? Or has He called you to extend your witness a little further to Judea? Or has He called you to go out to Samaria, across the nation, or to the uttermost parts of the earth? It's a question of where, not a question of if. We are all called to be witnesses, and in this way, John is a great example and model to us. You look at the life of the Apostle Paul, and this whole idea of testifying rises right to the surface. In Acts 20, verse 21, he said that his ministry was that of testifying to the Jews and also to the Greeks repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. Testifying, always looking for opportunities to open up his mouth and share. I think we all run the risk as Christians of having an imbalance here because we, we tend to swing on that pendulum of being a witness, walking in the light and being a light, being an example, and not worrying about so much about what we say as about how we live. And that's absolutely crucial. But you also see here that Paul the Apostle said that he was called to testify. You see that John was called to testify. You look at the life of Peter in Acts chapter 2 and verse 40 when he's preaching away on the day of Pentecost. And it says, with many other words he testified and he exhorted them, saying, be saved from this perverse generation. The reason we have to open our mouths and testify 
is because that's how men get saved. Yes, they need to see an example. Otherwise, they're going to just laugh off your testimony to them. If you live a terrible example and open your mouth and tell them about Christ, then they're just going to laugh it off. They're not going to pay any attention to you. But if you live a godly life and you have that in place, and you walk in the light, and you have the Spirit of God blessing you and anointing your life, then when you testify, men and women sit up and they listen because it goes forth with power. And you see, the reason John is an example to us of the ministry we're called to is because we are called to testify. And here's how it works. Testifying of Jesus Christ sends His Word forth. The Word goes out, it goes into men's ears, and then it goes into their minds. They think it through and it goes down to their hearts. And when the heart is open, good ground as the Bible calls it, faith is born there. Faith is born in the heart of an unsaved person through your testimony. So you say to yourself as a Christian trying to find the balance in life, well, what's important is that I live the life. That's what's important. I'm going to work on that. And then you end up not sharing with anybody. And then you realize, well, I haven't shared with anybody. So then you swing over to the other side. Now you're blasting everybody. And you're stopping people everywhere you go and saying, have you heard about Christ? And often not even led of the Spirit to do that. We bounce around on the pendulum, don't we? Being the example, saying nothing, blasting everybody, alienating them, really getting on our relatives and banging away at them until they don't want to even see us or talk to us or hear from us anymore. Somewhere in the middle of this, there's a balance of a godly life, a spirit-led witness where you testify of Christ. And we must testify, brethren. We must do it. Because it is that process God has chosen to save people. The Bible says, how will they hear unless a preacher be sent? And it's not talking about a handful of professionals. It's talking about those in the body of Christ who are called to be the light of the world. Romans 10.17 says this, Consequently, faith comes from hearing the message, and the message is heard through the word of Christ. Do you understand what that is saying? Faith comes from hearing the message... And the message is heard through the Word of Christ. So when you testify, and you are bold in the Spirit, and loving in the Spirit, and led of the Spirit, and you testify to people, and you tell them the truth, God uses that to give birth to faith within the human heart. And then with that faith, the individual reaches out and embraces Jesus Christ. That is how people get saved. And so we are all called to testify, and John is a great example of that. He spent his entire life seeking to attract people to Christ and not to himself, and testifying at the same time. Look at verse 8. It says he was not that light, but he was sent to bear witness of that light. Sent to bear witness. In his collected essays, Englishman Augustine Birrell tells of traveling through what was then in the old days the wild and remote parts of Lancashire in England. And he says that the people there had a reputation for being belligerent, heavy drinkers. But when Beryl visited them, he found them to be instead temperate and kind and hospitable. So he asked a local miner, he said, how did this great change take place with all of you anyway? Tipping his hat solemnly as a token of respect, the worker replied, well... What happened was there came a man among us once, and his name was John Wesley. The testimony of that one man changed our entire community. 
You must testify. I must testify. Here was a community of drunkards, a community of belligerent men who were ungodly to the core, wicked and unfulfilled in their sin. Into their community comes a man on horseback by the name of John Wesley. You know, there are a lot of people that have their doctrine all squared away that disagree with the doctrine of John Wesley. And they'll sit back hour upon hour upon hour having great discussions and debates about how sloppy John Wesley's theology was. I tend to think it was a little sloppy myself. But you know something? John Wesley lived his life to testify of Jesus Christ. And whatever may have been wrong in little tiny details of his theology, one thing was right. Jesus Christ is the Savior of the world. And he spent his life telling people that truth. And he, he saw a lot more people come into heaven and the kingdom of God and get saved through his ministry than so many of these armchair theologians, and I have been one myself in the past, who will just sit back and criticize his ministry and lead no one to Jesus. We must testify. And even as we're working on our own theology, we must testify. Brethren, when you go out from this place, make a renewed commitment to open your mouth and tell people about Jesus, because as you do, faith will be born in the hearts of those that are good ground, and God will bring them to Christ. What a wonderful thing to live your life attracting people to God. He spent his whole life, John the Baptist, doing this, even to the point of being so faithful that it cost him his life. His head was cut off and stuck on a platter because of his faithfulness to God. We look at that, and there's the model. The model is to testify, and the model is to be faithful no matter what the cost. And if ever there was a time we need to do that, it's now. It's now because there's so much confusion around us. The time, I believe, is so short. I believe Jesus Christ is coming back. Everything is in place. The world is coming to an end. And the devil wants to get you to the place where you won't testify. Ask yourself when the last time was you opened your mouth and shared Christ with someone and see if the devil's being effective in your life. Now, I'm not trying to condemn you. Some of you that don't have the gift of evangelism probably went into a mental tailspin when I just said that. Oh, no, maybe I'm not even a Christian. You know, I'm not saying that to, to drive you into any kind of tailspin. I'm just asking you, when was the last time you testified? Ask God to lead you and to give you the boldness and the anointing to open your mouth. Have you looked at your life in that context lately? I think we all tend to forget it. We just get into our routine. I have noticed these days that people go out of their way to attract attention to themselves. Have you been in a mall lately? Get yourself a Haagen-Dazs ice cream cone and sit down and watch the people go by and see how many of them have been spending so much time to attract attention to themselves. So here they are, they're all decked out and they've got the latest whatever it could possibly be that they're wearing and then even the way that they walk. I looked in the window of this one shop and here was a girl, I'm not kidding, the whole wall was a mirror and here was this girl talking on the phone and she's talking on the phone and her face is about this far away from the mirror. She has her face in the mirror and she's talking on the phone and she kept fooling with her hair like this and looking at herself and getting back and she didn't know, we, we just stood there and watched, we were loving it. I said, this is great, this is so classic, look at this. That's the way the world is now. So preoccupied with self and then doing everything to attract attention to self. And we spend a lot of money and time and energy on it in our society, right? On your hair, on your clothes, on your car, on your house, on your boat, on your RV, all these things. 
Here's John the Baptist. He's wearing a gunny sack, basically, out in the desert. And he's eating locusts and wild honey. And he's just turning people to Christ left and right. Now, I'm not saying we have to go dress that way. But the point is, John lived his whole life to attract people to Jesus Christ. That ministers so much to me. I want to live my life that way. I have spent so much time in my own life trying to attract people to me for this reason or that. I don't want to live like that anymore. Here we read in John 1, 6, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. In verse 7, this man came for a witness to bear witness of the light that all through him might believe. He was not that light, but he was sent to bear witness of that light. God has saved you to do the same. He has filled you with His Holy Spirit and sent you forth to be a witness. Whether it's in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, or the uttermost parts of the earth, He has put you on your job to be a witness. Do you realize that you were born into this time period in history for a reason? Have you ever said to yourself, I wish I could be born in another time period? I've watched the movies and watched movies like Ben-Hur and said, Oh, I would love to have been born then to drive in the chariot race, to crack the whip, you know, and to just really get out there to sword fight and all of that stuff, throw spears and kill people. I'm just kidding. We've all wondered, haven't we, what would it be like to live at another time? Why wasn't I born during the time of Jesus? I think we've all asked that question. Why did I have to be born now? I'll tell you why you had to be born now. Because there needed to be another man or another woman sent from God to testify. You see, John had his hour. Peter had his hour. Paul had his hour. Augustine had his hour. John Knox had his hour. John Wesley had his hour. They were all born to testify. Saved by God and born into the kingdom to testify. We have been born into the kingdom for such a time as this. And you have been sent to your job to testify. Some of you are kind of like the guy I read about. John G. Mitchell, in his commentary, tells a story of a prayer request that he received from a member of his congregation. The man came to him and he said, Oh, pastor, I wish you would pray for me that I might have another job. And the pastor said, Why do you want another job? You already have a good one. He said, Well, I'm the only Christian in the plant. I'm going to pray that you will stay on your job, I responded. Don't pray that, he protested. I'm going to pray that you will stick to your job. What would you want instead? He said, I'd want a job where there are other Christians. Well, that's very nice. That would be wonderful. But why do you suppose God put you in that particular plant? You are the only light that is there. He said, oh yeah, but I'm a very, very small light. I said, yes, but if you go into a dark room and strike a match, that little match will light up the whole room. Perhaps you are only a little old match where you work, but you are a light. Strike the match and shine, he said to the guy. Stay there. You see, we wish we were born in another time. We were born because God wanted us to be born in this time because this is our hour. This is our time. We've come to the kingdom for such a time as this. We want to have another job where it's all Christians. Then there'll be no one to witness to. Then no one will be getting saved through our life. Then we can wall ourselves off and have a lifestyle where we don't even know any unbelievers anymore. Maybe God sent you to your job to be the light that is there. Do you know that in World War II, when they would have the blackouts in England, they would inform the people, please do not even light a match. Because in the darkness, when it's pitch black, a lighted match can be seen by an airplane 11 miles away. One lighted match. It's so dark out there now. 
Some of you are struggling out there. You're in the darkness. It's not easy, but you are the light. And when it's really dark, your light shines all the brighter. Understand that. And thank God that you were born in this time and not in any other time. And thank God you've been placed where you are. And if He wants you there, let Him have you there. And if He wants you to move somewhere else, He'll show you. And He'll do it in His time. You strike your match and you light up for Jesus where you are and testify for Him. There was a man sent from God whose name was... Put your name in there. Whose name was Mary. A man whose name was Mary. That's a good one. But you put your name in there. There was an individual sent from God whose name was Mary, whose name was John. You put your name in there, whose name was Paul or Bob. We have all been sent, those of us that know him, to be a witness of the light. Let's go to the second thing for tonight. We have here in the section in front of us the world and the light. We've seen the witness and the light. Let's talk about the world and the light. In verse 9, we see the light revealed says that that was the true light. Now he turns away from John, which gives light to every man coming into the world. Now that is a tricky statement. That is a statement that many, many commentators have disagreed on what it means. The heretics have taken it to say that all men universally will be saved. It is not saying that. Now, I would like to spare you all the different interpretations that you could find on this verse. When it says that He is the light that lights every man that comes into the world, what does that mean? Every man that comes into the world. Obviously, we know from studying the Bible that not every man is going to be saved. We know that straight is the way and narrow is the gate and few there be that go that way. We know that broad is the way that leads to destruction and many go that way. So how could it say He lights every man that comes into the world? Well, let me tell you what I think it means. And you can be good Bereans and go search it out for yourself. I think it means that, having looked at all the arguments, that God gives sufficient light to every man. Sufficient light to every man. Giving them a fair chance at salvation. God is a God of love. God is fair. Now we're talking about now through all history. I'm talking about from day one all the way up until now. He is the light that lights every man that comes into the world. We know He existed before His incarnation. We know that He was in the world. We know that He was reigning over the world before His incarnation. And He is the light that lights every man that comes into the world. Certainly He lit up Adam and Eve, right? They fell out of that light into the darkness. That was their fault. Man was plunged into the darkness from there and is born in darkness now. But He is the light that lights every man that comes into the world. I believe it's talking about a sufficient light given to man from God, piercing through his darkness to give him a fair chance at salvation. That's what I think it's talking about. Leaving them then without excuse if they reject the light. For example, there's the witness and the light of creation. Could you turn your Bible to Romans chapter 1 to verse 20? Romans chapter 1 to verse 20. You know, many people ask the question, how could someone be saved if they didn't have somebody go out from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria and preach Christ to them. How could they be saved? And if that has not happened to them, then they die without having had someone like that preach to them, then how could God be just and fair? Well, let's answer that. There is the witness of creation that is given to mankind. Look at Romans 1.20. It says there, For since the creation of the world... 
God's invisible qualities, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that men are without excuse. You see that? So that men are without excuse. In other words, God, when He created the earth and put everything on it, He knew in advance man would fall, didn't He? I mean, God knows everything. He's omniscient. He knew that Adam and Eve would fall in the garden. Yet when He created the earth, He created it in such a way that after man fell, he would still be living on the earth, he would look around and he would behold creation. And that there in creation would be a sufficient witness, sufficient light from God in creation, so sufficient that men would be without excuse if they failed to acknowledge God, the Creator, through the testimony of creation. There is the witness of creation. The Bible says that if men fail to realize that, they are held accountable by God and they are without, are without excuse. There is also the witness of the Spirit of God to every man's heart. See, there is the witness of creation outwardly. The Bible says that you can look up, the heavens declare His glory day unto day, night unto night. You can see the testimony of God in the heavens. There is no nation or tongue or language or speech where you don't hear the voice of God effectively, the testimony of God through creation. And yet there is the witness of the Spirit of God to every man's heart. In 2 Peter 3.9, it says, The Lord is not slack concerning His promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to us, Lord, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. There, the Bible tells us, God is willing that all men would come to know Him. And because He's willing that all men would come to know Him, then He gives each man his fair chance. In Genesis 6.3, all the way back in the beginning of the Bible, Genesis 6.3, the Lord said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever. My spirit will not strive with man forever, for indeed he is flesh, yet his days will be 120 years. Possibly 120 years until the flood, which was about that time. Possibly God saying, I'm going to shorten his life, which he did. But the point is, he said, I'm not going to strive with him forever. What, what is being said there is that he does strive with man. You see it? He does strive with man. He strives with man with his spirit to get man to respond to him, to look at the creation and say, yeah, there's a God. All right, that's step one. And now I feel something else inside my heart testifying to me that I need to surrender to that God. And when that surrender is made, the response to the light it is given, then God can continue to lead that man on until he knows him. You say, how could that be? Well, God's been doing it for a long time, you know. God can save anybody He wants. God can introduce Himself to anyone that He wants. He doesn't have to go directly through a human being. He's chosen to do that. He has called us to do that. He's called us to testify. But did you ever ask yourself how Melchizedek in the Old Testament came walking out on the road that day when Abraham came back from the war and knew the living God? How he had become a priest of the living God? Did you ever ask yourself that? See, Abraham comes out He's got all these spoils from the war and he gives them to Melchizedek as a tithe to God. Melchizedek being a priest of the Most High God, King of Salem. Some commentators, many theologians feel that may have been a theophany of Jesus Christ. I'm convinced he was simply the King of Salem. And he was a lot like Jesus as a type. But here is this man Melchizedek. How does he come to be this priest of the Most High God? Well, God drew him. He responded to God. Well, what about the guy giving him tithes, Abraham? How did he find out about God? How did he come to be saved? 
He was living in the middle of a life of idolatry. His father was idolatrous. We know that. The Bible tells us that. His city was idolatrous. We know that. And archaeology tells us that. So here is a man growing up in the middle of idolatry. And the Bible tells us God came to him and called him out. God came to him. He responded to the Spirit of God coming to him. So when we read that He is the light that lights every man that comes into the world, I am convinced that God gives every man a fair chance. If man will respond to that light, if man will respond to the Spirit of God, God will lead him on. And in the Old Testament, of course, things were fuzzier, but we're not in the Old Testament anymore. And now we live in a high-tech world where you can travel a short distance from anywhere and sit down and hear a crystal clear explanation of the gospel. I want to give you a testimony here. I read this in church, uh, I don't know, six years ago, something like that, maybe five. So all two of you that are left here from then will remember it. I'm just kidding. But this is, to me, one of the greatest testimonies I've ever heard about how he is the light that lights every man, how he does give a fair chance to each man, and how each man or woman is held accountable by God to respond to that. And if you do, he will overcome all the obstacles and lead you to Jesus Christ. Because he sent Jesus Christ so you could be saved. That's how much he loves you. It's the testimony of Augustus Marway. The man lived in a village. He was involved in a lot of tribal wars. It was such a rudimentary type of a life there that he never even put one piece of clothing on his body until he was 14. So you want to talk about the, quote, pygmy in Africa? You want to talk about the guy that's out there in the darkest place where he doesn't know anything? This guy didn't wear one piece of clothing until he was 14. Is that far enough out for you? It's as far as it gets, if you ask me. He lived in the most aboriginal circumstances in Africa. And this is his testimony. He said, I resented it whenever strangers passing through the village were invited to our house. At first, mother allowed me and my two brothers to eat with the guests. But I made a pig of myself, stuffing my mouth with handfuls of rice and grabbing another handful before I can even swallow what I had. Mother was ashamed of me. She wouldn't let me eat with the guests after that. I would just sit and glare at the visitors, making them feel uncomfortable until they would invite me back to the table. From then on, Mother made me sit outside the house until the guests had finished eating. I don't know what made me so incorrigible. In fact, the whole village asked the question, What is the matter with the son of Marway? And my poor parents were at their wit's end. Even though I loved my mother dearly, I found myself doing terrible things. I can remember seeing her sitting on a bench outside the house and impulsively picking up a stick to throw at her legs. I missed her and struck a little child, hurting him badly. At times like that, the villagers would join my parents in meeting out punishment. That time they held me down on the ground by my legs and my arms while they poured a bowl of hot pepper soup down my nose. I nearly choked to death and for hours afterwards my nose burned. Think of this. Why did that tribe punish that boy for throwing the stick at the child? They knew somehow they knew right and wrong. Somehow. I attribute that to God. He said his heart was broken every day because he loved his mother but couldn't correct his behavior. Why did he feel guilty? I attribute that to God. And why was his mother ashamed of him? Who told her what the standard was? I attribute that to God. Many of these things, I believe, are a carryover from the fall in the garden. Still leftovers, you might say. And this is what we see in the story. He goes on, he says, I couldn't understand myself. 
After one of those episodes, I would go off into the forest and I would pound my head against a tree crying, What's wrong with me? I should kill myself. I hated being the white sheep of the family. But one day, when I was about 12 years old, a boy returned to our village from the coast where he had been visiting his father. By the way, that was a long, long journey by foot and none of us younger ones had ever seen the ocean. So we crowded around him to hear all about it as though he had been to the moon and back. Enjoying the acclaim, he kept us all spellbound with his experiences as he recounted the strange things he saw. Among other things, he told us how some people on the coast met together in a house on Sunday and sang and stayed a long time. He couldn't figure out what they were doing. And finally, his curiosity got the better of him. So he asked one of the villagers, What do you do in there for such a long time? They told him they were praying to God, the God who created everything. And they said that they believed that he heard their prayers. I had never heard anything like this. A God who hears your prayers? It excited me, and I wanted to pray to God too. I asked the boy to meet me on Sunday, since that's the day they met in that house, and we would go to some place outside the village, and he could tell me how to pray. But he wasn't interested. Disappointed, I decided the next Sunday to try it by myself. I went to a hut that my cousin was still building, and with no one around, I tried to pray for the first time. I had never even heard anyone pray. But I decided I would just talk to God like he was my father. I can't explain what happened, but it was an exciting experience. I wanted to know more about this God, but there was no one in this village who knew anything about him. So for two years, for two years, I kept praying by myself on Sundays and hoping that someday someone would come along and tell me about him. You see, he was living up to the light that he had. About this time, he said, the government started building a motor road to prepare for the new invention called the automobile. And along with many of my relatives, we spent two weeks a month for the next two years building the road under terrible working conditions. Then I went back to Sidor, where I had been born to stay with my cousin. When I reached Sidor, I made the most wonderful discovery in my life. For in Sidor, there was a house where people met. And they prayed to the God who created the world. How excited I was. I could hardly wait for Sunday. All night I lay on my mat waiting for that bell that my cousin said would ring and call us to that house. That morning I sat in the back. I listened to a man tell about God for the first time in my life. I found he was far more wonderful than I had ever imagined. The preacher said that God loved the world so much that he sent his only son named Jesus to take away my sins. I wondered if that preacher knew how terrible my sins really were. I wondered if he knew the awful things that I had done back in my village. But the preacher said no matter what I had done, God would forgive me and make my heart clean. Somehow in my heart I knew it was all true. Now question, how did he know it was all true? He was following the light that God had given him, and that was the next logical step, you see, and his heart had been prepared by the Spirit of God. He goes on to say, Hadn't this God heard my prayers when I had talked to him and asked him to help me? Hadn't he sent me here to Sidor when I didn't even know that he had one of his houses here? 
I gave my heart to God that morning, and it was nice to know that he had a son, too. He really is a father, just like I had been praying, too. You know what happened to that man? He became the most significant man in the nation of Liberia in our day, founding and building churches. A man who lived in such deep, dark Africa that he never wore a stitch of clothing until he was 14 years old, and no one in his tribe knew about Jesus Christ. But as he responded to the light that God gave him and the work of God's Spirit upon his heart, he came to be a church planter in the country of Liberia. And God used him and used him and used him in a mighty way. The very fact that that could occur proves that he is the light that lights every man that comes into the world. And if every man that receives that light will live up to it and respond to it, God in his way will lead him to a saving relationship with himself. Whether it is Abraham, whether it is Enoch, whether it is Abel, whether it is Moses or anybody else, Melchizedek or Augustus Marway, God is able to light every man's heart and lead that man or woman to him. The light revealed in Jesus Christ. Well, there's more here, verses 10, 11, in fact, the rest of the Gospel of John. But we'll stop here for now. I don't want to rush through any more of this. I think it's a good place to stop, a good place to think and contemplate. Let's have a word of prayer together, shall we? Father, thank you, Lord, that you are a loving and gracious and fair God. Thank you, Jesus, that you are the light that lights every man that comes into the world. Lord, we look at the example of John the Baptist here, and we see how he testified for you and was faithful even though it cost him his death. We see the sacrifices he made, Lord, to live unto you in a very special way, like you had called him. We see, Lord, that he lived his life to draw others to you, not to draw people unto himself. We see how it was his desire, Lord, even to decrease that you might increase. And now, Father, we ask in the name of Jesus that you would put these same attitudes within us. Lord, help us to testify, realizing that through the preaching of your word, faith is born in the hearts of those that would come to know you. Give us the leading of your Holy Spirit. Give us the balance, Father, between living an upright life filled with the light and opening our mouth to testify of that great light. Father, we will be careful to give you all the glory. Give us, Lord, each one the thrill of leading someone to Christ, and another one to Christ, and another and another. Use us, Lord. Give us relationships, new friendships with people that don't know you. And may we see you bring them to know you through the sharing of your love and your goodness in Jesus Christ. And we will be careful, Lord, to give you all the glory. All these things are done by you, by your grace and your spirit. We depend upon you utterly. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.